Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast, a project dedicated to exploring the world of anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas. Join us in our conversations with radical voices in precarious times. To view our full catalog, as well as links to our YouTube, Stitcher, and SoundCloud accounts, visit our website at nonservium.medium. If you'd like to support the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash nonserviummedia. We appreciate all donations, big or small, and your support helps us keep this project going. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word, and so you can stay updated with our most recent episodes. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Williamson, and you are listening to the 14th episode of the show. Today, I'll be interviewing a prolific creator and activist whose work is deeply engaging, provocative, and important in many ways. Here's my interview with Emmy Bevancy. Emmy Bevancy is an anarchist, anti-fascist, and disinformation researcher. They're a senior fellow at the Center for a Stateless Society, a doctoral fellow at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right, a Mozilla Open Web Fellow, and PhD student at the University of Arizona. Emmy values empathy and freedom and uses their data science chops to help movements and social justice organizations shine. Their written work has appeared at The Independent, Bellingcat, Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, and more. Emmy, welcome to the show. Hi, good to be here. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. So I inevitably left out some stuff in your intro. It seems that you've been involved in so many interesting projects that I just had to shorten it up. But I, I, I got to ask you, like, how is it that you've managed to be so productive? And what do you think drives you to be so passionate about anarchism and liberatory projects in general? Well, this year I have more time than usual because my Mozilla Fellowship is sponsoring me to work in the like sort of hate and disinformation space, uh, but focusing on both writing things and building tools. So I have more more time <laughs> than usual. And I think the drive comes from, I guess, sincerely believing in the possibility of radically better futures, but also being deeply terrified about a number of quite likely probabilities (laughs) of substantially worse futures. So some some tension of, of those two things. Okay, and you're originally from Arizona, right? Um, I've lived all over the U.S. I'm currently living in Mexico City, actually. Okay. I watched a a video where you explained how how far-right militia groups were collaborating with border control to stop migrants from coming into America and just different nefarious things that they were doing. Can you explain like how bad the situation actually is and maybe a little on in general, like what's going on with that? I, I definitely w- don't want to mince words. The U.S. border militarization project is is like a genocidal project, and I want to be super clear about that. And bo- border patrol itself is something of a terror cell. 
like a state-backed terror cell. Um, there's been a lot of incredible research by the uh, Abuse Documentation Working Group of No More Deaths, No More Muertes, and um, they've, they've published several reports and have a new amazing report coming out soon enough. That kind of evidence, like show a lot of evidence of systematic destruction of aid, harassment of aid workers, and also how different border militarization tactics directly contribute to death and suffering in the borderlands. But if that wasn't enough, there's this huge patriot movement, so-called patriot movement, and there's a lot of different political subdivides in the paramilitary militia movement in the borderlands, um, and some of them are more explicitly fascist and white nationalists, and some of them are, I would say, still effectively such, but less ideologically driven in that direction. And they collaborate pretty extensively with Border Patrol, sharing intelligence, working together. Former Border Patrol often uh, miss their glory days of sitting in parked trucks in the desert for 10 hours a day and join up militia organizations because it gives them a bit more freedom in terms of what they're able to do. They already have an, uh, a kind of expansive degree of freedom towards violence, but um, there's even less scrutiny uh, when you're in a paramilitary organization. And so they've, they've occupied a lot of border areas, including small towns, and some small towns have created pretty extensive resistance to these militia organizations. There's this one small unincorporated uh, one-horse town in southern Arizona, and um, the local militia organization is banned from the only bar. <laughs> There's a sign in the window that says, militia's not welcome. Good. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's pretty hard for those communities to push back against well-armed, mm -hmm. like reasonably funded paramilitary orgs. But we've also seen those organizations like going to alt-right events and stuff like that. So the connections are pretty dramatic. What are some good examples of on-the-ground efforts to try and stop these militias and border control from interfering with migrants? Yeah, so there's a, there's a pretty wide range. In Arizona, the most famous is No More Deaths, uh, which has several different working groups. There's a working group that does search, search and rescue or search and recovery. Rescue being trying to find people who are lost and recovery being trying to collect remains to return them to the families. There's the like a desert aid working group which runs 24/7 like emergency medical and camps. Um, that working group is most famous for the recent trial of Scott Warren, in which he was facing 20 years for basically what they were what they were considering alien trafficking because he provided like medical aid to some folks who were crossing. But he he got off. That was a there was two trials. The first one was hung jury. The I went I went to the second trial. I went to the first, both trials, and it was a pretty dystopic scene. But but he did win in the end. But yeah, there are tons of organizations. No more deaths is the most famous, um, and then there's also abuse documentation and no more deaths. And then but there are other organizations in in different states, like in California and stuff. And then there's just a wide range of autonomous movements that don't necessarily have like a, a nonprofit kind of designation, but like organize against fascist movements, 
or against border patrol militarization. There's a lot of like emergency response work being organized throughout the borderlands because in the borderlands, we we don't have ice as much. It's more common to interact with um, border patrol. They kind of take over the the duties of ice. Mm -hmm. And so if there's a raid or something there, you know, people are able to gather a bunch of people and try to resist the raids. There's a lot of, so there's a lot of different projects like that going on. Um, and then I think the long tradition led mostly by like Chicanx communities is, is hospitality, which is just like, if you see somebody suffering, then help them. Right. Well, as you said, you're living in Mexico now. Why'd you make the move and what are your plans while living there? Yeah, I'm doing a I'm doing a program at UNAM and I'm working with some groups here to run some workshops. I'm going to be running an, a workshop around like open source investigation, uh, specifically geared towards like, you know, analyzing propaganda. You know, say the government produces some account of a protest or something, being able to find out what really happened and support people in that. So helping people dig through online information to find evidence to support them or do investigations. So I'm kind of working on that. Um, I recently released a, a beta of this project called the Social Media Analysis Toolkit, which is designed to help like radical groups, researchers, journalists like study different phenomena that are happening on, on social media. And so I'm also working with some people here around that. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get down to the basics. What is disinformation? How does it work? And why are you interested in combating it? Yeah, so I guess it's important to first distinguish disinformation and misinformation. Um, misinformation is, is someone who's just sharing something that they think is true, but isn't necessarily true. And then disinformation is like more of a targeted campaign of manipulation. So some examples of disinformation would be like political propaganda or sort of weaponized information and different actors in that space in the disinformation space are like corporations you know reputation management services and stuff like that but also um state intelligence agencies there's like a pretty active hybrid warfare right now between the u.s and russia competing for control of the internet and control of narratives and truth quote unquote about situations but then there's also like you know politically motivated journalism or really dedicated individuals this is where we get into all kinds of things like bots and stuff like that and my beliefs around disinformation are basically that well my my core ethics are that we should try to maximize people's agency not in sort of like a simplistic like u.s style freedom sense but in a complex like interde interdependent way where we're, we're all trying to maximize our agency together as individuals but together and so having accurate information about the world that you live in allows you to make better predictions which allows you to make better choices so i got into it in part because i was living on the border between Turkey and Syria for a year about. And um, when I came back, I realized that leftist movements were just swamped with disinformation about the conflict. And it was like pretty terrifying and depressing for me to encounter. 
uh, like sort of the impact of state-backed disinformation campaigns on social movements and how that was how that was impacting, you know, sort of internationalist solidarity more generally. And then that kind of coupled with some other, this is, this would be like 2015 or so when I came back and a lot of people were starting to sound the alarm on like a resurgence of fascist movements and white nationalist movements. And so in my mind, disinformation, misinformation and fascist movements more broadly have a lot of overlap. And so I just started kind of, I just started working in that space and writing and researching and trying to help people. And I was just doing it kind of out of my basement, so to speak, for several years before I I got this Mozilla fellowship to kind of focus on it more directly. A little later, I definitely want to go back to your time spent at the border of Turkey and Syria. But for now, I was hoping we could explore a little more on examples of disinformation. What's one of the most obvious or nefarious examples of disinformation you've seen in recent years? Hmm. The thing that hurts me the most is definitely the lionizing of Russia and Syria and the way that the left has sort of fallen for this notion, this idea that somehow Russia is like an anti-imperialist actor on the global geopolitical stage because they oppose the U.S., which is part of a concerted disinformation campaign by the Kremlin. And obviously I'm opposed to U.S. imperial militarism, but the sort of gray zone style, anything that's not the U.S. is um, by definition uncritiquable, uh, is, is I think really dangerous in terms of having accurate views to make predictions about the world. Mm-hmm. And so it, it really it really hurts our social movement's ability to kind of prioritize people most impacted. You know, a trivial example is my local like anti-war organization wanted to have a protest against U.S. intervention in the Middle East. And I was like, chill, that makes sense. But they wanted to fly the flag of the regime of, of Assad. And I was like, hey, so there's a large Syrian community in our area, and all of those people are going to be from areas that were hit with barrel bombs, that faced possibly chemical weapons usage in their immediate family or friend group, and otherwise just like indiscriminate shelling from Russian and Syrian regime jets. Like, so it might be kind of traumatizing, you know, to like for you to use this flag. Like, and they were just like, no, all your friends are CIA. There were no protests. Assad is democratically supported, and this is this is the flag of the true will of the people. And I was just like, "Whoa, this is fucking bad. <laughs> this is real, real bad." Yeah, not good. So, yeah, that's why I think it's important. Yeah, totally. And um, to follow that up, what can you think of a uh, less obvious example of disinformation that still has negative effects? Like, in my opinion, some of the most pernicious disinformation campaigns are sophisticated in presentation, which makes them easier to accept and be normalized. And it's like precisely in their prevalence that they become banal and therefore more dangerous. Mm. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but 
you know, it's I'm thinking of like the same way that uh, the alt right. They're like, no, we don't need the like swastika flags. The American flag is good enough. Yeah. Can you think of any? Yeah, like less obvious examples of that, but yeah. still dangerous and worth pointing out or combating. Yeah, there's a there's like a whole class of like weaponized memes, uh, which are a form of information warfare that the alt right has been pretty good at at doing plausible deniability around. So like I mentioned that some of these militias in the US-Mexico borderlands identify as like patriot movements and good good disinformation has like three true things and a false thing and like a more important false thing that they're trying to sell. And so alt-right movements in Arizona are quite good at being like, yes, we're patriot movements. Mm-hmm. And there are a bunch of people who identify, you know, as three percenters or whatever as patriots and that's like kind of true obviously that has its own problematic history and stuff like that but that's kind of true the disinformation bit is like because these three people don't identify as white nationalists then this is not a white nationalist movement we're not creating space for white nationalism we're not connecting white nationalists we're not arming or training white nationalists like a lot of things that have to do with plausible deniability i think could be counted as as sort of disinformations, like even, you know, the, the Kekistan flag, mm-hmm. it's just a troll. It's not the Wehrmacht, you know, war, the Nazi war flag. It, it, it's just a joke. It's just a joke mm-hmm. is I think an example of, of a way that disinformation can work. It still advances a Nazi agenda, but is able to say, no, 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 we're doing something else. Right. Is it possible to resist or curtail the spread of disinformation online without giving greater power to the state or already powerful social media companies? Yeah, so something that I think about a lot is how incredibly important independent and alternative media is. Obviously, in activist movements, we have, you know, this beautiful array of podcasts, you know, such as yours. We have on-the-ground activists reporting like Unicorn Riot and stuff coming out of IGD and stuff like that, and indie media and stuff like that um, before. And these are super, super important. These build the backbone of our, like, of how we communicate about things that mainstream media wouldn't be willing to cover or would cover incorrectly or would cover in dangerous ways because they don't really understand how information works in activist ecosystems. However, alternative media is a huge attack vector for disinformation campaigns. Mm-hmm. So I, I mentioned Gray Zone earlier. I'll talk a little bit about Gray Zone. I agree with Gray Zone on like 70% of things. It's their extremely conspicuous silences that I have a super hard disagreement with because they're they're conspicuous in, in what in the story that they don't tell, which is in who they do support who they claim they support versus who they practically support in terms of the information war that's happening. And so alternative media, we can have people like that posting, you know, really dangerous falsehoods about, for example, the the OPCW, which is like looking into chemical weapons usage in Syria. And because they have, because they're decent at leveraging you know, leftist memes like anti-imperialism. And I don't mean to demean anti-imperialism as a radical practice by calling it a meme. I just mean literally 
it's an a set of ideologies and practices. Um, they can weaponize that discourse to basically do right wing entryism to be like to start calling all Muslims terrorists, but in this way that makes it harder to critique them because of how they're utilizing our discourse. And our movements have gotten pretty good at less conspicuous forms of fascist entryism. But I think that this this new alternative news ecosystem is something where we're we're struggling to deal with, even when it's so clearly like far right in in some of its messaging. Uh, it's good at making itself untouchable in other ways. Well, I mean, that's what an MI six operative would say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about how uh, you and Alexander Reed Ross were accused of being MI6 operatives, and I think C4SS was even drug into the mess a little bit. Uh, what led up to that drama, and how did it happen? Yeah, that was kind of a wild story. Basically, Alex and I wrote this paper about conspiracy websites that the alt-right uses, and we were just fo- our paper was just about the alt-right, but we were talking about, but we ended up talking about like Zero Hedge, Consortium News, and a few other of these kind of alternative media websites, Mint Press, 21st Century Wire. We d- and we were talking about them just in the context of the alt right. But because some of those sites are syncretic, like in, by nature, they they do crossover between far right and far left conspiracies the gray zone crew picked up on it and were like, you're talking trash about some of our media landscape. Uh, and so then kind of wrote this smear piece about us or whatever. And yeah, it was, I just, I expected to get attacked by the alt right for that. And it was just like a scholarly article. It was, we were just like testing out some different data science methods to just prove that they could be used for doing social media analysis Honestly, I thought like four people in the world would read that article, but then all of a sudden there was like 10,000 plus people talking about it on the internet. And we didn't expect to get attacked by the so-called left either. I mean, I don't know if I would consider that crew to be like super leftists in nature, kind of a Trojan horse, but uh, it's tricky because I recognize, I, I think that a bunch of them are true believers in in fighting U.S. intelligence agencies that are waging disinformation campaigns. And that's the part that I'm like, yes, this is very important. But there are a lot of true internationalists doing a better job of that. On Twitter, there are a lot of like super radical Afghans talking about both Russia and the U.S. intelligence agencies and how they interfere in Afghanistan, for example. And I think that that's the kind of really brave alternative reporting that we need to follow and amplify because those are the people who aren't taking some sort of implicit support from a state actor for protection. And that's why we need to be protecting those people because they're just trying to actually say the complex nuanced thing. And the nuanced thing will always get you attacked by people who aren't concerned about factual information and are trying to push some sort of agenda, either because they're state-backed themselves or just because they have some like deep political project that they're focused on. 
Well, speaking of you and Alexander, you both recently co-authored an article titled Transitional White Terror, Exposing Adam Waffen and the Iron March Networks. I found your article to be very thorough and informative, and I was impressed with how y'all included that interactive map also, which we spoke about earlier, actually scared the shit out of me. Why did y'all decide to write this? And for anyone unfamiliar with it, can you explain what it's all about? Yeah, so um, some anti-fascist activists got a hold of something called a SQL database, which is just like, it just contains all the information of of this website, uh, including private messages, posts, passwords, sign-up emails, IP addresses, everything of this website called Iron March. And... um, we had a slight head start, actually, because I found out about it uh, a few days before it was released. And so we started digging into it. And a funny thing happened, which was the founder of it is named Alexander Slavros. And we traced his IP address and it pinged to within the Kremlin. So for a moment, we had a big like conspiracy scare. I mean, we were we were like reticent. <laughs> and we were like we were like circumspect enough to be like, OK, this this can't be true. If it oh is true, God. it's wild, but it, it's probably not true. And it, it turns out it's almost certainly just an artifact of how centralized Russian internet is. I think it's just passing all the internet packets through the Kremlin uh-huh. so that they could ultimately shut down the internet to either protect the country in an attack or to just surveil the country. Right. Although <laughs> I will say the recent conspiracy about the head of the base who turns out to be living in a posh apartment in St. Petersburg, running one of the most ideologically dangerous neo-Nazi terror organizations in the U.S. and with a a sort of alleged intelligence agency background, (laughs) certainly doesn't calm our, like, conspiracy senses. That, That story... I, you know, I'm not willing at this point to say that he works for the Kremlin. I just have insufficient evidence, though that is where everything currently points. And what I am what I am willing to say is he has certainly gotten a visit from the FSB. They certainly know that he's there. But yeah, so we, we got a hold of this, this SQL database and um, we started just investigating it. And we just wanted to expose how the internet was being used to leverage real world attacks and we ended up making the interactive maps and stuff like that. Um, and Bellingcat was quite, there's a lot of conspiracies about Bellingcat too, but uh, all said and done, they were quite supportive of us basically proving that neo-Nazi organizations were using U.S. militarism as an avenue for recruitment. So they let us draw a pretty clear line between U.S. foreign policy and neo-Nazi organizations. Yeah. So we're we're pretty happy to be able to write about that. And then and then within a week, the base the base kind of comes out of that Iron March Adam Waffen network. And within a week, now there's been six or whatever major arrests within the base. Wow. Mostly as a result of this one anti-fascist who infiltrated them. He took over the base's Telegram channel. And, and started posting memes about Ronaldo. 
I actually found the head of the base's wife's VK. VK is like a, a Russian Facebook. I found that account like a month ago, but I just didn't. I didn't think that it was actually him. But I probably found it the same way the Guardian found it, which is through this service called Find Clone, which is like a facial recognition database that works on VK, which is really useful for people who are researching the clan because the the Ku Klux Klan, the modern clan, uh, uses VK to organize now. So if you have a picture of some clan member, you can look them up on findclone.ru and find their profile. And they think that it's like some sort of private service. Uh-huh. <laughs> so they just post like pictures of their house and stuff. Wow. That's kind of wild. Yeah, but I I didn't I didn't think that it was actually him, but it turns out it was. <laughs> that is wild. What's your response to people who say you know, these far right people, they're paper tigers. You know, the more attention we give to them, the more we fuel the fire. You know, don't feed the trolls. They're not really dangerous. We shouldn't be concerned with them. How would you respond to that? Oh, uh, so the, the Glenn Greenwald position. Sure. Well, I mean, it's just objectively false. And if like a huge spate of murders is not enough for you mm-hmm. and like attacks and vandalism and assaults and kidnappings, Uh, If that doesn't cut it for you, I would suggest like looking at the history to study how quickly a small minority of fascist organizing can lead to a pretty profound shift in the governance of a country. I mean, my experience working with Syrian activists was that a lot of people didn't expect how quickly things changed. And they had, you know, profound and super radical movements in a ton of cities, but then the fascists came and the fascists had a lot of fighting experience and were able to just decimate the radical left in Syria and seize control of territories and start providing services and do that whole kind of mafia thing. And so it it really shook me. And that all happened so quick. It, It just made me realize like, we need to defend our communities Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think sometimes people think, oh, that, you know, the Middle East and people in the U.S. think, oh, the Middle East, that, you know, that place over there where all there's all these problems. Um, they, de- you know, decontextualizing the history of colonialism and all this, obviously, but also just forgetting that, like, our problems are very interrelated. I mean, the U.S. has a lot of the same areas of tension that Syria had prior to the Civil War. We have a much more profound like civil society organization network, and we have a quite different structure of governance and policing. But nonetheless, we have a lot of those tensions. And, and I mean, civil war in the U.S. is, is possible. Yeah. And uh, I'm not saying that to be like, I'm not saying that to be super fatalist. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we have had large scale urban conflicts in cities like Portland for the last three, four years. And in Arizona, things like that are quite a powder keg because everybody's armed. So I, I just want us to really start thinking about defending our, defending communities against Mm -hmm. what I'll call like white terrorism, but also building resilient, uh, emergency infrastructure, building resilient, um, mutual aid infrastructure, all these sort of like long-term mutual aid projects that anarchists have been advocating for 200 plus years 
and other societies, other indigenous societies have been practicing for 6,000, I think are going to become increasingly useful, increasingly essential, especially with climate change and stuff like that. So while I'm not, while I'm not saying everything's going to go totally to hell, I'm not a complete pessimist. I think it's a, the the same structures that would protect us in a, in not an emergency would also help us to just build a more equitable society in general. So that's why I believe it's quite good to do those things. Yeah, definitely. What are your thoughts on uh, different anti-fascist gun groups popping up around the U.S. in recent years? And generally speaking, do you think that we should become more familiar with firearm training and safety in the coming years? Well, I think that the U.S. is a distinct culture and a distinct situation. And so it's important to contextualize it in that way. I won't speak to the realities facing other places. I think that marginalized people who choose to build competencies around tools for protecting themselves is something that I support and I empathize with and I think makes a lot of sense. That being said, bravado around violence disgusts me. Any of the sort of cheering for civil conflict that happens on the right, you know, the the boogaloo, any of that kind of posturing from leftists like LARPing, I find extremely suspect. We should do everything possible to transcend violent conflict because it's just deeply entrenching. But that being said, I support people who aren't looking to the state to protect them because in unrest scenarios, I mean, arguably in any scenario, the majority of the population is not likely to be greatly protected by the state, more so the interests of a certain highly privileged subsection of the population will be protected by the state. But I mean, practically speaking, if you're worried that fascists are going to come to your house, then it's good to have a response plan. And that response plan isn't just owning a gun. It's like having a network of people who you can call because you know that the police aren't really going to help you meaningfully. Uh, If anything, that could make the situation a lot worse. And having a plan for for how to interact with, with crises like that is, I think, quite useful. But it's no secret that the right the right beats the left in large scale violent conflict in the U.S. There's just it's just unlikely to go any other way at this point. They have the guns, they have the training, they have the money. It's just it's not it's not smart. Yeah, I agree. And this doesn't only apply to the left. Anyone who's interested in liberatory politics actually take a look at a night round shoot on YouTube of the Knob Creek Gun Show. I actually went to one of these things. It won't show you in the video, but there's a sea of MAGA hat spectators and some folks who openly walk around with swastika shirts who are in attendance. Might make you second guess whether or not promoting civil war is a good idea. Yeah, but also the le- what I consider to be the honest left is like pacifist in the sense that they think violence is overall a bad thing if it can be avoided even if they don't even if they aren't like strict pacifists in the sense of seeing any form of in in the sense of categorizing a lot of forms of self-defense as violence or aggression so i think generally the left is like no we don't actually like violence we we would prefer that violence wasn't the case but we will like do what we need to to make sure that marginalized people don't get genocided (laughs) um 
the, I don't I don't see like an equivalent of Rajava in the U.S. in the sense of like people who had 20 plus years experience fighting the government for like indigenous sovereignty um, then entered into a larger civil conflict and were able to largely maintain a territory despite you know multiple state actors trying to encroach and make and still having to make a ton of hard compromises to to secure the territory they have secured i just don't really think there's like an equivalent in the in the u.s left it doesn't mean that we should be fatalist but it's just like i don't know i'm not a pacifist i just think violence sucks Mm -hmm. i mean i think that the real the real strength of radical movements is more so the world that we want and you always try to build from your strengths what your strengths actually are and minimize the attack surfaces from your weaknesses. I think that movements of people who care about people are naturally going to have bigger attack surfaces around, you know, sadistic violence because it's just like not our thing. So what our strength is in that regard is like proving that we can build a world that's more enjoyable to live in more meaningful to live in, uh, more sustainable and more resilient to live in. I think that's the biggest thing that we have to offer. And so I want to be, I want to like emphasize that as much as possible. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And um, very well said. I, I really like that. Well, as I mentioned in your intro, you recently became a doctoral fellow at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. What's this organization all about? How do you end up joining their efforts? And what do you expect will come from this relationship? Yeah, it's a pretty incredible organization. There's a lot of people I really respect there, like Megan Squire and others. They just do a lot of research on fascist movements more broadly. I got connected them with them because Alex and I are... Um, we have a paper in review with them that's about the, the history of eco-fascism, basically, and how it's morphed in the modern area, era. And by that, I mean, like, how they've tried to enter leftist environmental movements or anti-imperialist discourse in order to, like, advance specifically fascist projects. Um, So everything from, you know, attempts to infiltrate Earth First to the kind of Volkish blood and soil environmentalism of the actual Nazi party. And so we have a a paper coming out on, like, a big, quite thorough study on that history coming out. And I'm really excited about that because I think that obviously the right leans more towards climate change denialism, like human-caused climate change denialism, but there's always been this part of fascist movements that recognizes human-caused climate change, and that part is going to keep growing. And a scary thing has started to happen where I've started to see leftists be like, I would support fascists if they were truly like green Bad take. because people are just scared. Yeah. People are scared. And I, I get that people are scared because, you know, we're, we're, we're heading into it, an environmental apocalypse, you know, in, in our lifetime, you know, we're going to experience something that no human has experienced before. Um, and so I, I understand the fear, but I, my motivation in writing the paper was to try to convince people that systems like fascism that emphasize overly simplistic hierarchical models 
lack the agility and adaptive mechanisms to deal with complex situations. And climate change is sort of the definition of a complex problem. And so no like green dictator is going to save us. And we need to be careful about people who who abuse leftist discourse to try to advance like ultranationalist projects. Yeah, so I, I got connected, we got connected with them through through this project. And this was after several of the mass shooters have like mentioned environmentalism and uh, yeah, yeah, and other like green issues in their in their manifestos in the last year. So yeah, I'll, I'll probably I'll probably be writing a thing for them every every few months or so. Um, yeah, it's an exciting new connection. So we've mentioned it a couple times already, your experience at the border of Turkey and Syria and non-Servium media, non, the non-Servium podcast has recently been exploring ideas related to, to markets, municipalism, democracy, and themes surrounding the Rojavan revolution. What was that like for you over there? What was your big takeaway on their situation? Well, I mean, depending on who you ask, we technically lived in Kurdistan. Okay. But in Turkish Kurdistan. And each of the four Kurdis- different parts of the larger Kurdistan have different politics. Iraqi Kurdistan has different politics than Turkish, which has different politics than Yudani, which has different politics than um, Syrian Kurdistan. Uh-huh. Some overlapping lineages and things, but uh, a lot of important differences, including linguistic differences. My experience there, I was mostly working at that, I was more so at that time working with people. I came there with interest in Rojava, but I ended up working more with people who were, who at that time, you know, the possibility of, of like a democratic revolution in Syria still seemed a lot more possible. And so a lot of the people that I was working with were more, more broadly anti-Assadist activists. But I worked with a bunch of Kurdish radicals there as well. Yeah, it's just an immensely complicated situation. And just overall, I think we all kind of know that we're witnessing one of the greatest tragedies of our, not just our lifetime of like since World War II at least, but it it can feel pretty helpless in terms of what we can actually do. And um, Rojava or the DFNS have is itself quite a politically complicated project certainly living there disillusioned me to some of my like naive utopianisms and kind of introduced me to a lot of very complicated realities i mean it's no secret that uh rojavo made treaties with with the regime uh and was working with the cia and i think that Tankies in particular are quite quick to jump on the ladder. The CIA bit they they tend not to emphasize the uh, the truce with the regime, mm-hmm. but I think it's pretty appalling to like be a leftist and be like, uh, yes, you should have faced certain genocide instead of making strategic alliances in the way that you did. It's not as if they're like ignorant of the history of U.S. imperialism in the Middle East. They're they're all keen. They're all super keen. They just made, had to make a lot of decisions to not die. Mm-hmm. They knew that they were going to get abandoned by the CIA, too. They just chose U.S. support over Russian support. And it's like choosing 
two evils. I think Crime Think was mentioned a lot about like the real tragedy was that they were forced to accept support from the U.S. Mm-hmm. and that international movements weren't able to provide the solidarity necessary to protect them from like certain Turkish genocide. Yeah. Or or retaliation from the regime because remember before the war they were fighting the regime for quite a long time. So yeah, it's an it's an immensely complicated and sad situation but my life there was pretty normal it was pretty like middle class you know go to the bowling alley sometime go to the mall it's chill turkey turkey's an amazing country actually um istanbul is like a really really just gorgeous city why were you there to begin with though i was working with an organization that was kind of like doing civil society work in syria and and working with refugees as well um, but not not a Western organization, a Syrian organization. I was the only non-Syrian employee, actually. And I just was volunteering with them because I just thought they did cool work. Yeah. And then uh, eventually they brought me on. It was just kind of actually where I got into data stuff because it ended up data stuff ended up being really, really useful for their for their organization. Yeah, and then eventually I started doing more like open border solidarity work, but that was like not with an organization. But that was that was where I started thinking more about like what open and anti-border solidarity should or could look like. Speaking of direct democracy, you wrote a paper at C4SS titled "Democracy is Awful and We Need It for a Ton of Stuff." What were the points you were trying to make in that article? <laughs> so I was speaking a bit to the post left, I think, in that article. Well, there's always been a tension in leftist movements between organizationalists and anti-organizationalists. I'm a true believer in in a lot of the post-left critiques of organizationalism and how they destroy movements and trap things and protecting the organization instead of actually doing whatever the goal is or whatever. And, you know, build all these really intense, weird social capital structures and perverse incentives and blah, blah, blah. I agree with all those critiques. But I just, I see some people throwing the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> we still we still need to figure out how to solve human coordination problems in ethical ways. And we still have these limits of how much we can communicate and how much we can make decisions as larger as increasingly. Like the more people that you have trying to make a decision, it becomes exponentially more difficult. It's not like a linear problem space. And so... Even while we we should have really strong critiques of organizations like direct democracy or democratic norms are still better than a lot of other things like, for instance, fascism. So while we're experimenting with like these many new forms of modern, more agile social movement structures, I think we should still have like a sense of scale. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Let me push back on some of the ideas you have in this article, if you don't mind. Yeah, certainly not. So at the end of the article, you note that, quote, I'm using an incredibly vague definition of democracy here to basically be people making decisions together at any scale and degree of directness. Now, I've heard others refer to democracy simply as collective decision making and even use the word as a synonym for consent, which personally, I think is a bit reductive and not really that useful. So I guess my question is, do you think 
that a lot of anarchist disagreements about democracy basically is semantic and ultimately comes down to simply having different definitions of what democracy means. Yeah, for sure. That was one of the problems with the article. And I think that more accurately, what I was trying to get at was just coordination problem between humans. Okay. Because democracy as a term has a lot of baggage. You know, in the U.S., we tend to think of it in terms of <laughs> the the sheer antiquated joke of the U.S. electoral system. But then there's like a, you know, a kind of fetishized utopian direct democracy project as well. Yeah, so I agree that there, depending on how you're defining it, uh, it it changes a lot what you're what you're actually arguing for or talking against. Democracy could describe <laughs> anything from you know making a decision with your group of friends to the Zapatistas to the U.S. government, and all of those things are hugely different scenarios. So it's it's kind of like using the word socialism. It, it makes it really easy to do uh, to do bad faith discourse. Basically, you can dunk on what you want the definition your enemy is using to be, instead of the actual definition that your enemy is using. And for the record, I don't I don't think that you're making any bad faith arguments there. I was actually really you know I was writing notes about your the way you were describing democracy as I was reading the article, and I was very pleased that at the end you were like. By the way, this is how I'm referring to democracy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I agree. I think a lot of it comes down to basically using the same word to, to describe completely different things. Yeah. Like, I have a lot of too many strong opinions about too many things. But at the end of the day, I'm more nerdy and curious than certain and ideological. That's a good attitude to have. So, like, I have some predictions about, like, how this thing is going to work out. But I think it's generally, like, I have a lot of friends who are wobblies, for example, or in the IWW. Uh-huh. And I'm like, I have some opinions about how this thing is and what it is and why, why some why reasons why I think it's it's not going to work the way people want it to. But at the same time, I'm just like, no, it's great. I'm glad you're doing it. You guys are do- you guys are do- you guys are doing a great job. You know, <laughs> keep it up. Well, we got to keep a stigmergic, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so try 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 it all. Throw spaghetti against the wall. All right. Well, switching gears a bit, I was looking at your website and um, there's a section dedicated to emotional anarchism. What's that all about? Oh, yeah, cool. Um, (laughs) So I have this website called emotionalanarchism.com that I started uh, some years ago just because I started, I had this idea that interpersonal and like internal work and community work is like another important realm that we could apply the, the the praxis, if you will, of like anarchist thought, of like maximizing agency. And I think that in some sections of activist communities, there's like a, a fetishizing of sort of a machismo of direct action mm-hmm. that marginalizes all the squishy work, all the, all the feelings work that happens in movement spaces that's often like femme or queer coded. And so I was just, my goal was just to make a case that that all that work is a meaningful area of movements. And like, it's no secret that people who are fighting for a better world have like tons of mental health problems. Yeah. <laughs> because like, 
we're all traumatized. That's part of why we're doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. There's been and there's been a lot of related books actually coming out from like AK Press and stuff like that about in 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 similar veins. So I started writing some stuff about it, and then other people started getting interested in writing some stuff. And now we have a book. It's not released yet. We haven't even submitted it to a publisher, but it's edited. We're quite close to submitting to a publisher. It's it's formatted. So yeah, that's that's that project. Cool. Did you want to expand on like what the book is going to entail exactly? Um, it's just going to be a bunch of essays from a bunch of people. It's going to have like too many of my essays probably because I for a while it was just me writing. But a bunch of other people have submitted essays, and I don't want to kind of. There, I'll I'll leave a little bit to surprise for the release, once once we have some more concretes about like what what publisher is going to pick it up, and, and but a lot of a lot of really great people are, are are contributing to it and bringing a lot of different types of perspective. You know, everything from consent to there are essays that are about theory. There are essays that are really concretely about different projects that people have done. And then there are essays that are like more exploring personal narrative. There's like some poetry. There's just a lot, a lot of different stuff going on. If people are interested in that though, uh, they could certainly reach out. <laughs> yeah, cool. I've actually spoken with Jahed Momond on the podcast before about mental health. And not too long ago, I heard you and Jahed doing a speech at a conference where y'all were kind of covering what emotional anarchism is. Yeah, Jahed's working with us. Jahed's got got an essay in the book, and we've also done it. We did a talk on it before. Ah, cool. I didn't realize he was going to be in the book also. Yeah. That's great. I'm uh, looking forward to seeing what he contributes. But yeah, anyways, in that speech y'all gave together you were kind of going over some of the practical things you've done with emotional anarchism. Can you tell us here on the podcast what some of those things were? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing I'll say about this project is like, there are some things that I just have been assigning words to, but a lot of people in movements have been working on since before I was born. Obviously most of the stuff I did not probably almost none of this stuff did I invent. Certainly I didn't invent sitting in a circle and talking about your feelings. <laughs> but yeah, I mean one of the one of the experiments that we ran in my community of activists was we started having what we were calling an anarchist feels circle, which was just where like once every two weeks we would get together. And uh, the structure that we did was three Ps, which is personal, political, professional. And so we would just go around the circle and talk about personal, you know, stuff going on in your life, you know, in your heart, in your relationships, in your mental health, whatever. Professional is like, is just like surviving capitalism stuff, or it's just like things that you're learning about or skills that you're building or whatever. Because also another side effect of this was just like talking about money is not really a thing in the US, which is weird, you know, because we all have like these problems with money and but can't really talk about it. So building spaces for that is part of what the professional P was for. And, and then political is just like what's engaging you politically, like what you're organizing around or what you're thinking about or stuff like that. And so we were just, it's a really simple structure. We would just sit in a small group of like six people and go around and do this. And it was like really profound. And I think that it brought a lot of us out of a deep sense of isolation in movement spaces. And it helps build accountability around things that we were working on and 
realized that the, we weren't the only ones feeling certain things and there would be connections like someone would be like, yeah, I have this problem, uh, you know, and this other person would be like, oh, this is how I dealt with that. Yeah. It just ended up being a really, really cool example of how if you combine peer support models, uh-huh. like 12 step has a good, like peer support in and of itself is, is quite a powerful thing. And they have a good little structure that they have. It's just that there's a ton of weird baggage. I mean, not the least of which is that 12 step aims to be inherently apolitical. And we know that apolitical means siding with the oppressor. I mean, it makes sense if you're making a big tent organization that you shouldn't have people talk about who they're going to vote for, for president or something like that in their, in the emotional support group. But it just doesn't make any sense for radical communities. You know, if we share some degree of, of liberatory politics, then those politics also impact our emotional state. And if we're trying to be sober, you know, or trying to change our relationship to drugs or something like that, then political realities are going to be a part of that. Like politics are going to be related to our mental health in important ways. Yeah, so it's it's critical that we're we're able to draw those connections out together. You know, it's the point of a the point of the project for me was for us all to figure out like how much self-help is possible and how much do we have to change the world, you know? Yeah. It sounds simple when I just say it like that, but it's a whole thing. That's so beautiful. I mean, I'm really glad that that you're doing work like that. It, you know, it doesn't to a lot of folks, it just doesn't sound sexy enough. You know, I think that that's why people kind of avoid it. And also, you know, trauma, like it's hard to confront. So being in a space like that, where you're able to, to speak with one another in a trusted environment, like I can definitely see how that could be useful. So yeah, even even in like a utilitarian way, even if you're like, even just in the sense of like, this will make us better at movement stuff, because we're not all getting burnt out, you know? Sure. Yeah, definitely. Beyond the point of our movements is to build a better world that's that's like less traumatizing. Right. And part of that is emotional and part of that is like doing hard interpersonal work, even just from a very consequentialist lens. Yeah, absolutely. And to be frank, if your politics ends at imagining like a future utopia that may or may not come about and doesn't inform your everyday living, then... Is it worth doing? It's probably just a posture at that point. Right. It's probably an aesthetic. Right. More than a politic. I saw one of your tweets not that long ago about the future of work. And I was curious as to what you think emotional anarchism can add to the discourse on the future of work. I was tweeting about the future of work because I did this. I did an impact report for this sort of mutual aid network, mostly based out of New Zealand called Inspiral. And it's like a complicated organization or network, I guess I should say. It's more of a network than an organization. But a lot of folks in there talk about the future of work. And I think that mostly they talk about it from the perspective of like work is going to continue to exist. Work is good. We should just try to make work more meaningful and less draining. And we should try to pool resources and make it more equitable and, you know, build more solidarity around both finances and emotions and things like that. I think that's their general approach, which I think uh, movements in the U.S. could learn could stand to learn a lot from. But they don't really necessarily come at it from an overall critique of work. So that's that's again the big critique of like laborist leftist politics versus like anti-work, which tend to be more anti-organizationalist politics and post-left in general. 
so yeah i think there's like some important tensions between <laughs> should work exist at all and <laughs> if so what should it look like and yeah emotions are like a big part of that they're they're doing a lot of experiments in Inspiral, and a lot of those experiments are super high trust and i think some of that high trust is possible because they have the dole which is like if you become unemployed in new zealand then you get a thousand dollars a month from the government which isn't a ton of money but is a ton of money also there's a whole thing in europe called dole anarchism which is like you live on the dole live in a squat and then just be a radical full-time or whatever that's not half bad <laughs> sounds great i've heard some bad uh, impacts of it but yeah but but yeah so i think that they have a little bit of social security infrastructure to to do some high trust experiments around what sharing sharing money looks like practically but i think that there are versions of it that we can think about in the u.s and yeah emotional like emotional anarchism is definitely a part of it in the sense of like I think that to quote the great Blink-182, work sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it just devastates a lot of us, you know? Like, I've worked in factories. I've worked delivery jobs in Arizona summers, you know? Like, it just, it eats at us. It, it impacts our emotions, which impact our movements, you know? Yeah, totally. So feeling like if we didn't all feel so precarious... I think that it would have a big impact on our movements. Towards the end of these interviews, I like to do a lightning round where I list a series of people or ideas and have my guests respond to each item in one minute or less. Are you down? Let's do it. Cool. Left unity. Partial oppose. Largely oppose. <laughs> I'm extremely into factionalism, but also am capable of being realist about like not dying that's it <laughs> okay so not a fan of gulags i guess <laughs> no i i okay, I, cool. cer- I certainly uh don't really advocate for i don't really consider gulag supporters to be leftist so i don't consider that left unity alex jones oh love him best friend <laughs> <laughs> i knew you'd say that <laughs> you and your info wars. It is. It, it, there's a war for our brains. <laughs> no, there's there's old videos of Alex Jones like yelling at FBI agents, and I was like, Jones, I hate you. Don't make me love you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next one. Russia Gate. Like the Kremlin as differentiated from Russian people in general, has a very dangerous geopolitical structure that's exercised by primarily by its intelligence agencies, but also by its military overall. That being said, when U.S. Democrats blame um, U.S. white supremacy on Russia, even if Russia is actively supporting neo-Nazis in the U.S., it misses the point entirely. So it's important that we recognize threats without, like, surrendering our own responsibility. Bernie Sanders. It sucks that he kind of believes in machine guns at the border socialism in the sense of, like, a social safety net for citizens. But he's gone on record saying, you know, that Latin Americans are too poor to enter the U.S. and stuff like that, which is just, like, aside from being proto-fascist, just, like, false and weird. 
Um, also, it sucks that he opposes sex workers in, in pretty profound ways. But he's definitely a harm reduction in a million other areas. And I think it would be much easier to, obviously much easier to leverage him than to like leverage Trump around certain issues. Reputation markets. I think that reputation systems are just things that already exist and are helpful for building trust, which is the basic ingredient for coordination. And so they're really important, but they're also really dangerous in the wrong hands or if they're centralized in in bad ways. So I think that we need to be aware of how they work for doing commons problems, but I'm also very skeptical of how a lot of them are rolled out. Okay. So I want to move on to Patreon and listener questions, and then uh, from there we can go to the end of the interview. So one question that's recommended almost every time from a regular listener is, how can I get a cappuccino in your imagined political utopia? I reckon it depends where you're living. (laughs) Um, I kind of envision polycentric self-coordination overlapping networks of systems going on. I'm not strictly opposed to currencies, but I imagine most things would be just dealt with through mutual aid infrastructure. So I imagine you could probably get one from your buddy who's living a uh, simple life, like a sustainable cared for life, would probably just give you one for free. But also if your friend wasn't around or didn't like making cappuccinos, you would probably also have some forms of currency that you could use to buy it. Fuck yeah, okay. Um, another listener asks, how do we take back what the capitalists have stolen from us? I think that it depends on like the specific subsection that you're talking about. There's so much that's been stolen from us, like our well-being emotionally, but also materially for many people, the land that they have historical, like in sacred relationships to performing rituals in. And for other people, the, in, the entire lineages lineages destroyed by slavery and colonialism. So I, I don't think that we can, um, I think there are some wounds that we can't heal and that we just have to destroy what's harming us and try to support the victims of it, the survivors of it. But I think that building more agile networks and resilient networks of mutual aid and solidarity is in order to break down things like monopoly and its weird perverse incentive structures is like a really great start. Another listener asks, do you ever fear that quote unquote cancel culture runs the risk of devolving into stigmatic cruelty? And is there room for a narrative of forgiveness within it? Um, I think that the funny thing about the alt-right or whatever latching on to cancel culture is that people in movement spaces have been with great nuance and sincerity canceling cancel culture for a very long time. (laughs) Uh, but (laughs) But we do it from the lens of like, we know why these new norms came to be. We started changing the way we use language exists because language harms people in in really tangible ways. So obviously people are going to abuse it for power, but like when people abandon the whole project, you can tell they're just doing a fash thing instead of actually engaging with it with nuance. 
Now, this is the last listener question. We've already kind of covered this a little bit, but answer this in whatever way you'd like to, obviously. In the same way that some people articulate socialism as a step between capitalism and communism, can democracy be thought of as a step between authoritarianism and a society of harmony, collaboration, and cooperation? Um, I don't necessarily think of it in like a teleological way or like a deterministic way of like, this thing is guaranteed to lead to this thing in the sort of like Marxist view of it. Yeah. Um, but obviously like straight up authoritarianism, democracy, and some largely unexplored terrain of vastly increased coordination and agency, um, makes sense in a broad sense. Sorry if that didn't answer the question exactly how they intended. (laughs) No, that's good. Let's go ahead and move towards the end of the conversation here now. What are some good resources you think folks should plug into in order to learn more about the politics that you're interested in? Yeah, I draw really, really widely. I mean, I've worked with C4SS for many years, and I appreciate that they're happy to get a, a pretty wide range of views and let those views kind of duke it out but I just encourage people to be really nerdy so I'm interested in like theoretical stuff like Eleanor Ostrom and I'm also interested in how computer science computer science and math more broadly relates to um, liberatory social projects and yeah I would just say follow follow your uh, your inner nerd where should folks go to check out all of your work um, yeah, I have a Twitter. It's at Emmy Bevensee, at E-M-M-I-B-E-V-E-N-S-E-E. I also have a website, which is emmybevensee.com or rebelliousdata.com. Um, and I post regular updates on my website about all the different projects I'm on about. And my Twitter is, is like slightly obnoxious, but you can certainly find out what's going on with me there. <laughs> Uh, is there anything I forgot to ask you that you'd like to touch on before we end the interview? Um, no, other than I just would like to say I really appreciate your podcast and all the different guests you bring on and all the different kind of nuanced discussions that you cultivate here. So I'm just very grateful. Thanks, Emmy. That means a lot. Thank you so much for joining me today. I, I really appreciate your time. Everyone really needs to go follow Emmy and their work at their website. Uh, yeah, again, I can't, I can't thank you enough. I really enjoyed our conversation and hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. For sure. There it is, folks. I hope everyone enjoyed my interview with Emmy Bevancy. If you like this episode, feel free to check out our full catalog at nonservium.media. If you'd like to support the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash nonserviummedia. If you aren't able to help out financially, simply liking and sharing this episode will help more than you know. And before we end the episode, I gotta mention a few more things. Just after we stopped recording, Emmy reminded me that C4SS is soon doing a mutual exchange series on decentralization and economic planning. Emmy wanted me to let everyone know that they're looking for some help with that, especially if you have some editing skills. Be sure to reach out to them if you're interested in lending a hand. The second thing is you may have noticed I made some new music and a new intro for the show. Let me know what you think about it with an email or a comment. 
The last thing I wanted to announce is that non-Serbian media might be making some big changes soon come May Day. We're still working out some details, but we soon hope to create a network that allows us to produce more content. So keep an eye out for that, and let us know if you're curious and would like to help in any way. Our email is nonserbianmedia at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.